The subject of the evening talk is, uh, on, is understanding and the spoken word. And I will endeavour to weave together the impossible of speaking about children and their boring meditations, uh, the lineage and, and the spoken word. <laughs> In looking at, the, at our own process, our own personal process, there's a sequence of events which take place in which a manifestation of that is in what we say. And we may say that it has, in some way or other, what we say has its origin in percep some perception and feeling. And so we may accumulate, as we often do, a wide variety of experiences or a wide variety of knowledge about and, we have, and out of that we've, there comes about the, uh, certain perceptions and certain feelings about things and these get expressed internally, initially um, as thoughts and ideas and views and opinions and a whole range of uh, mental activity, which we might say thought being a very predominant one with other supportive factors going with it. And thus from the perceptions and feelings, both real and imagined, through the interaction producing thoughts and feelings and all those, all the ramifications of that, it comes out in our relationship to the world as words, as the spoken word. And we see that within that sequence of events, there's certain characteristics which are very important and sometimes we, we, we neglect one for the other. And what I mean about that is that there is obviously the necessity in our communications to be truthful. But sometimes in the wish and in, and in the effort to be truthful, to be honest, we may not be considering other factors as well. And one of the factors which has to be considered is what goes with that truthfulness? What goes with that honesty? So in, a, so in the field of, of communication, there is certain, there's a certain kind of useful criteria. And the Buddha in the, summarized it in, in one or two very simple, but I feel very clear and appropriate ways. When speaking of right speech, Right speech meaning appropriate speech, skillful speech, necessary speech. When speaking of right speech, he said to be aware both of, of course, what we say, to whom we say what we say, where we say it, and when that there needs to be some awareness in our relationship, in our speaking about something of the, per, of the content, of course, extremely important, but not only of the content, but to whom, 
where and when and what's implied in what we say. So one gives consideration to time, place and person and in giving consideration to that it, it becomes um, an attribute to right speech. And we've all had the situation, I'm sure, where we've wished to communicate something to another. It's been the right subject matter, it can be in the right place, but it can be completely at the wrong time. And particularly when it's something which is beyond the superficial, something which is very important to oneself, which one feels is important to another, but one says it late at night when both are tired. And instead of producing what one hopes is, is that the other person will be able to listen and be attentive and acknowledge what is being said, the other person's energy is completely low, burnt out, and it just produces the exact opposite. It produces a whole sequence of reactions. So it's a situation where one hasn't given consideration to the time. Sometimes, too, it's with regard, say it can be with regard to place, and I'm speci speaking specifically here where there is an, a definite difficulty in communication, obviously. Where, and, and certainly as parents, and you know, here on this uh, retreat with many of us as, as parents, we begin to realize that when one is trying to have some in-depth discussion about the state of the relationship and what's happening within it, as many of us have found that the only way that's possible is when there is time and opportunity for that to take place without the presence of the child. Because the child either demands attention or even more, which one has to look at carefully, where there is some intensity within the communication, the child picks up the whole unpleasant vibe of it. And so this, this exploration and communication, and particularly in one's home life, gives real consideration, one might say, a primary consideration to that kind of flow of communication which, if it's difficult for us, is such that it doesn't have its impact on the young one who is around. Not that any young person, of course, could be totally uh, protected from these things, but having that awareness beyond the urgency and the immediacy of the situation. And in the old, in the old text, with regard to this area of communication and the expression of it, um, one sees also, it's not only, as I mentioned, speaking what is true, but also speaking what is useful. And it, I have often felt and noticed in uh, myself is that the consideration in our communication to what is useful, is it something useful to say, goes alongside speaking truthfully. Because sometimes, in speaking truthfully, 
it might be truthfully the thing that comes to mind say is giving feedback to somebody but if there is effect of that truthfulness in the speaking is that it knocks the person sideways that it produces a trail of pain and unhappiness one wonders whether the crit uh, criteria or measure of truth with applicability is being respected or being regarded. And one of the things which one notices in this inner flow from perceptions and feelings to thoughts and interests and attitudes of mind to speech that one of the things which very much affects our communication and, and particularly in difficult communication is how unsettled or settled we are inside. What's actually happening in our innermost life some way or other tends to get reflected in what comes out or what doesn't. And so beginning to sense in a very real way the inner flow through to the outer expression and really watching of that process inside of ourselves becomes such that one really does find time in our what we find time in our life to stop and say when the if the speech is skillful and appropriate being aware of that, appreciating that. When it's difficult, when one feels that one hasn't got over what one wishes to say, to use that situation as how can I learn from this? Now I personally feel that one of the most important attributes to write speech or useful speech or creative speech is in listening. Listening itself trains the mind to be extraordinarily receptive, receptive to where somebody else is coming from and one can connect inside of oneself in a, in a similar way in, within. You know when somebody says, you know, you say to a person, how are you feeling today? The person says, so-so, or okay, or not bad, or whatever. And we tend to think, oh, I know what that means. And then we just nod. Oh. But if one actually asks a little bit further, not bad about what? feeling so-so-so so about what, or whatever, and inquire, there might be behind that one-liner a tremendous amount of stuff which needs to be shared and talked about and communicated. And if it's the right place, right time, right person, right situation, that allowing another to communicate what's really being felt inside and oneself being a listener to it brings about that openness and trust in the communication. And I feel therefore that real listening amongst friends is one 
very useful and effective way of allowing and connecting with another person to speak out and correspondingly giving oneself the courage and willingness to do it oneself. And another factor, and I think um, to its credit, meditation here can be very, very helpful, extraordinarily helpful in right speech, is that I find, and you possibly may do also, that sometimes we have conversations, you know, we, one has friends coming round for a, a meal, and sometimes it's completely necessary and appropriate, of course, that the conversation can jump and switch and dance from one thing to another with incredible rapidity. You know, one, one minute one is in one part of the world, and the next minute one's talking about the newspapers, and the next minute's about the Olympics, and the next minute's about what I'm going to do next week. And, it, and, and we've all known that the dance of the conversation. And sometimes that's quite adequate in itself when people are just hanging out together in that flow. But sometimes it feels it hasn't gone anywhere and it hasn't felt nourishing inwardly. And in order to make that happen, there has to be at least by one person within that communication a certain single-pointedness, a certain capacity of mind and obviously in a warm, affectionate and caring way to bring the mind back, the various hearts and minds back to a point. And when one, when one is engaged in that total listening and picks up on something which seems important and one senses it, to bring the topic back to that and to ask a question and to more about it and to express how one feels about it can become such that that topic, whatever it is, can be explored and a sense of going into can take place. And certainly meditation practice has a great usefulness in training our hearts and minds to be single-pointed, to be focused and to be aware when our mind does move away when it does slip away, as it does in meditation, and to see and be aware when the mind does slip away in our communications and conversations with other people. You know, now, now these days you can make a profession of it. You know, they have these companies and uh, groups and meditation teachers, so forth, will often have a facilitator whose primary job is to ensure that the group's mind doesn't wander away and, and get, a, get away from the topic. And, and it's this kind of focusing and, and refocusing to explore something, to go deeper into something. And quite often, it seems to me that we often miss opportunities for that kind of inner nourishment which can take place through being focused in a single-pointed way on a particular topic and theme. You know, and sometimes in relationship, in the field of the personal relationship, 
it just doesn't happen sufficiently enough. And so a family, the, uh, two people in a relationship can start drawing the clues in their relationship. All we seem to talk about is the kids, you know, about the shopping, about the bills. And, and two people have to create time to sit with each other when they have energy and uh, feeling for each other, to sit and talk and communicate and suspend and give time to it. And sometimes even making some parameters of what one will talk about. Okay, we're not going to talk about children, we're not going to talk about what's got to be done in the house, we're not going to talk about this wretched job, or whatever. So, so it, one creates, through an agreement and through an affection, a field to communicate about. Somewhere amongst all this, I've got to weave these other two topics in, which keep <laughs> popping up in my mind as I talk. <laughs> and one of the things which, on the on the outer outer level, and this is again where this there's this flow from feelings and perceptions to thought to speech, and beginning to see this sequence. It's a very important inward sequence, how that affects us. And one of the things which I have noticed personally, and I had a very vivid reminder of it a few days ago in a discussion group that we were having, and one or two of you who are here was in the group. And um, this was a group, incidentally, just before the, um, the parents' uh, retreat here. And the mind itself may be our mind, our speech, as I said, may be expressing something quite true or reasonably factual as far as one knows and experiences. But one overlooks something else. And what we sometimes overlook is that there's a charge behind it. So it might be right, but the charge behind it has more influence than the actual content of what we say. And sometimes when we're keen to get something over to somebody else, the way that we think we're going to do it is being by putting more charge into what we say. So sometimes it comes very consciously for us and sometimes it becomes unconscious. And in putting that kind of pressure out towards another or towards the others, it can have the exact opposite of what one is trying to communicate. And that occurs sometimes when it's an unfactual thing. Sometimes, for example, in my uh, experience in um, being here at uh, IMS, and coming here regularly and coming here now for the last uh, couple of times a year since, uh, since 77 and having the uh, privilege in our uh, world, in our society, to, to speak whatever, whatever one wishes to speak about. And I think it's a very great oh, delight and joy to be able to do this. And one notices, as I'm sure you do too, that in one's communication, sometimes one goes into areas where 
One feels reasonably clear about something, but there's still residue from the past, which isn't, hasn't been looked at, or one isn't completely free from. And that residue is identification with it. There's some ego at work. And so sometimes, like when asked about uh, lineage and, and the past, and some of us, and I certainly am one of those people, have by necessity have had to give a lot of care and attention to one's, in this case my, my relationship to lineage, my relationship to the spiritual tradition, because the feelings about it have been somewhat mixed. And that creates inside of the perception and feelings sometimes something of an ambivalent relationship. So in other words, and you know you can see any kind of situation which is important for you and tradition and lineage is one important for me, that in the ambivalence there can be a, an appreciation, a genuine appreciation for all that one has received. You know, and some of us who, like myself, had the whatever, the blessing of uh, spending some ten years in the East, of being supported by people uh, in Asia, which enabled me to do my practice in a sustained and uh, unbroken way, and the tradition over thousands of years, and before the Buddha, this tradition has been taking place, this tradition of giving support to men, to women who wish to engage in sustained and serious contemplative practices, that tradition has been flowing on and some of us, and I am certainly one, have, I feel, received considerable benefit from it. And alongside that appreciation and, and heartfelt gratitude and for the wisdom which has been conveyed from one generation of men and women to others, and I am a beneficiary of that tradition, alongside with it goes, and some of us, and I am one of those, have a, what do you say, what I call a critical faculty. One sees also that, one feels sometimes that the tradition has got suffocated, or is suffocating. It's su suffocating in religiosity. It's suffocating in form. It's suffocating in, in rituals. It's, su it's suffocating by placing too much emphasis on being a monk or being a nun. And, and it's not expensive enough. So, so one ends up experiencing a certain critical outlook mixed or combined with a sense of the beauty and the significance of the tradition and what that has meant for countless numbers of people. And to some extent, to all of us who are here in, in IMS. And so having that, one explores inside of oneself ways and means to find a balanced relationship in which one tries to observe and be aware the heartfelt sense of what one appreciates and yet being aware in as, in as caring a way as possible of one's expressions of criticism. But sometimes, and this is the point I'm getting to, sometimes there's a charge in it. One reacts 
And so we had a situation in the discussion group where, where I caught myself. I think other people caught it before I caught it. I have to develop more practice and awareness in these things. Um, and we're having a discussion group, and part of the agreement, often it just goes unspoken within the discussion group, is that we speak from what we see, what we experience, what we know, rather than quoting anybody else, any authority. Not that there's anything negative or bad, as it were, about that, but in using speech and taking the words of others and putting them out, even if we're quoting directly, doesn't say enough about ourselves. And sometimes I feel there's an avoidance mechanism, not always of course, which can be taking place, especially med in meditation, in the spiritual experience. It must come from you and from me. And so one must be very wary, I feel, in not quoting, and particularly when one quotes, quotes these major spiritual figures of the past, because one person may quote one thing, and like the Buddha said, um, take guidance from the Buddha, he has stated that, and elsewhere he said, be a guide unto yourself. One person ex expresses one view and states one, and the other person responds and, and says, but this also, he also says the opposite. So, in other words, in taking quotes, it's always, I feel, a difficult one. Or similarly, using words which is not in our Western language. Trying to speak the language that we speak, rather than bringing in a lot of other words. So one of the people in the group, this one, long way around to get to this insignificant point, <laughs> like one of the people in, in the group mentioned a word which I hadn't spoken and I can't remember hearing for years. It's a word called parinibbana. Now, for those of you who are fortunate enough never to have heard this word, I <laughs> And base, to give you the, the essence of it, there is nirvana, the, the peace which comes from the, the discovery of reality with life present. There is parinibbana, which is the peace of reality when life isn't present. That's how I state the difference between nirvana and parinibbana. Others will interpret it differently from me anyway. So this person just mentioned the word parinibbana, the nirvana without life. Now, can hardly be in his experience, <laughs> since he's sitting there talking about, about it, you see. So the person said this, and I went, what? And there was this charge, I just saw my energy, just hearing this one word go through my ear, into my mind, into my body, and I went, what? And, and I can't quite remember the, uh, the subsequent uh, reaction uh, to it, the way it was verbalized. But certainly the charge was there. And in looking at it and reflecting on it, and in getting some feedback, of course, about it afterwards, I realized that around some concepts, and that concept gets used very frequently, you know, if you're a Buddhist monk and you're only living in a monastery, and these words get, become daily use, 
that, that even though that some eight years has gone by, the charge within the situation and around the word was still there. And it only took the expression of the word striking a chord inside and the mind moving. All just simultaneously with speed. So in this, I feel, in this de in development of this right speech and having a trying to find a balanced relationship with life and with things which are important to us and for me one area is, my, is tradition and the enormous beauty and significance of it that in finding a balanced uh, relationship to that it's also seeing where the mind is still clinging and speaking clearly and and appropriately and skillfully is, a, is, a, is the spoken word in which the charge is diffused. And that's not only healthy for oneself because, of the re, because the ego is not so much in on the act, but also the message which we might be trying to communicate to another person, I feel is going to be heard much more easily trying to tell somebody the way things are and trying to talk about the way things are has a different qualitative feeling for the listener. And that difference in the quality of feeling and thought and speech tends to occur much more easily when we are coming from a settled place inside. Hence the relationship between meditation and the process of communication as a contribution to a settled place inside. And so I find that when one really wishes to be very focused and single-pointed and to give care and attention to what one is speaking and to keep it cleared as possible, things like posture become quite important, that, there is a, that the energy flow is such that it's able to flow reasonably freely, and so therefore a reasonably straight uh, posture, the uh, listening totally to another person, connecting with their language, asking of questions to that person, being with one's heart genuinely interested in the process of communication enables communication to evolve and deepen quite naturally. But it requires listening. It requires making truly full use of conversation. Ordinary everyday conversation. And that brings and develops inside of us a real re receptivity. And one of the major handicaps to meaningful conversation is the television set. Someone said in our house just recently, you haven't got a TV? No, I wouldn't mind actually having a TV, but uh, someone asked about my relationship. My relationship will fall apart if we had a television. Grandma says she refuses to live with me and a television. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> kind of fast. <laughs> anyway. And so one of our, one of our neighbours said, you haven't got a television? I said, no, we haven't. She said, what do you do all evening? <laughs> and, and some people's views and perceptions is really like that. How can you go on without the goggle box? And, and, and the degree that television is watched really inhibits communication. And in America, more hours are spent watching the television per week than in any other country on the planet. And the average viewing time per person per week is 23 hours. Isn't that amazing? One whole day, 23 hours in a week, is the average viewing time. One whole day a week to watching the box. And of course, some people say, well, you can med meditate on television. You can sit and meditate and watch television. And I, yeah, I say, I, say I, quite, I quite agree. The best results come when the set, set is switched off. <laughs> <laughs> and so sometimes real sacrifice in, our, in areas of life and letting go of things and make and giving a genuine value to communication to the right person, right place, right time, right right speech, and in a way which we are very watchful of the charge and investment, and where that's operating in our communication, at least acknowledging it. When we're coming across in a way which there's obviously pressure there, and obviously emotion, and obviously we're being judgmental or being heavy, at least to the person that we're doing it to, at least saying, this is what's happening in me right now, this is what I'm throwing, throwing out, and taking responsibility for it, rather than viewing it as, you, it's because of you or this is the way you are, and all that charge which gets thrown out, and there's no willingness inside of ourselves to say, this is the way my mind is reacting. And I think when, when we can say, like, this is the way my mind is reacting, there's a bit more space for the other person to say, to hear. But when we're under a shower of verbal assault and blame, what we want to do is protect ourselves, either by withdrawing or by throwing back. So giving space by acknowledging what we're experiencing does help someone else to hear. And after all, that's the only purpose for speaking. <laughs> speaking has no other purpose in life you know, basically, unless the other person is going to hear what one is being, what one is saying. I mean, there are exceptions to that, but I'm speaking primarily. Now I find the same. I can finally weave this one in now. Finding the same <laughs> with the with the children with our meditation classes. Now I remember a couple of years ago, one of the children who was 
here. Well, that's an interesting because it was um, Myla's son. <laughs> Sorry about this, Miley. But, and, um, and a couple of years ago, when we had, we found, and, and as Christina um, mentioned, that um, it's far more useful to have this meditation class with the children, with no parents around, because the children become so self-conscious. You know, they start showing off or playing up or being silly because there's a parent or parents around. So when we just had it with just the children and the, one of us as a meditation teacher, it's tended to be easier. Now I remember a couple of years ago, uh, Willow, like s several other of the children or the boys and girls, was used it for fun. It was a playtime. And there was a bit of uh, noise and then two or three other boys and they'd be playing, playing around and some of the children were quite focused. Now the first tendency of mine comes up, okay, some children are into it, they should stay, those who are not into it, well maybe they should go out and play outside. But I felt that rather than make a division in any way, let the children as such let us just do, do the practice of some children are noisy, they're noisy. And if some are a little bit more quiet, a little bit more meditative, right, to stay in, in touch with those as well. And what I noticed, and this very clearly came because of my memory, you know, with the uh, uh, younger Willow, that in the meditation group that I gave one today and a couple of days ago, he really gave his care and attention to it. And he sat still, cross-legged, closed his eyes, remained focused and attentive, and really put his energy into it. And I wonder, if we had been more exclusive, may, I don't know, maybe it might have put him off. So similarly, as you mentioned then, where if a child feels bored by it, doesn't, you know, it's hard for a child to feel these things, feels a bit bored by it. Okay, still, it's still under the child's own motivation to come to the group, even if not, nothing very much is happening, connect with the group, and if the child doesn't come next time because it's boring, and meditation is often boring, isn't it? It's boring for adults. <laughs> why, why should we expect it to be different for children? But if, if it is boring, the child would go and do something else. But I feel the unitive sense and the allowing sense is very important. And so, like, like today, one of the, Heather, one of the children, brought in a small bag of balloons, which hadn't been blown up. So before we started, Heather blew up the balloons and made a little knot, and I said, said to each of the children, please take a balloon, and just hold the balloon in your hands, and just close your eyes, and relax and be still, and just imagine that this round balloon which you're holding in your hands, just imagine that you're holding the whole earth in your hands and you're protecting the earth and you're looking after it. So the little ones, they just sat there. Now some of the children went, Bree! <laughs> and, <I, laughs> and, and another so this is their response, you see. But some of the other Children, and I must say, when we arrived, the first, I don't know whether this is sexist to say this, the first ten children in here were all girls. 
And then the boys came in, all came in in a group <laughs> about five minutes late, anyway. Won't go into that. So, <laughs> so, the, so some of the children, it doesn't seem to have too much with, to do with age. It, it's more to, more to do with how they're feeling right now. And that's that, that kind of uh, response. And some of the children just sat there. It was so beautiful. They just sat there. And I said, just there. And remember, there are people on the earth. And remember that there are uh, animals and there are insects, and there are trees and flowers. And, and just remember, you're just holding the earth and just looking after the earth, protecting the earth. And some of the children, just speaking, just really, um, really responded. And for others, it was play. And the, I think the feeling with, with, with that is, both is really okay. Rather than, anyway, creating any kind of, any kind of separation. And as soon as I said, just a couple of minutes before 12.30, you know, as soon as I said it was, oh, it's lunchtime. There was only Nishana left within three seconds, you know, and, and the, <laughs> they're gone. <laughs> In other words, we created a little scene together. They were, I felt happy to be in the, in the meditation hall because this is where the, the parents come and they feel that they're in that kind of spirit of what we're into. And their responses were, I feel, a delight to participate with, for me anyway, real, a real sense of joy and delight. And, and I think that kind of uh, spirit and openness in our speech and our communication with our children is vitally important. Because any kind of pressure in these kind of fields will produce the kind of reaction that some of us experienced in the religion that we were brought up with. And we don't want to repeat history because we think we know what's good for our children in, a, in the religious or spiritual sense. And therefore, in our communication and the application of uh, useful speech, it's approaching things in that open and spacious way. Let them find out themselves, let them de develop with their own motivation there and giving support to that by somehow our meditation and our spirituality speaking about our life. May all beings be inwardly aware. May all beings be aware of communication. May all beings abide in an affectionate way. <laughs>